This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is a December 25th, 1998 case. It's out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. It makes its way into NamUs 10 years later on December 12th of 2008, the case does. Um, This is a a Hispanic and Caucasian female. She's 5'6 to 5'7 inches tall, 150 to 160 pounds. Uh, She's 34 years old when she goes missing. She'd be 58 today. And she's got brown hair, brown eyes. Uh, She had metal in her left knee due to surgery that was done. uh, It says Lack Jackson, Texas. I don't know if that's accurate. And she has a mole on the back of her neck. Um, And uh, there's a couple of pictures available for her different places. Uh, Betty Vigil Garcia. So this is Albuquerque, New Mexico, and... Bernalillo County, Betty was last seen at the Drift Inn Lounge in the vicinity of Coors Road Southwest and Bridge Road Southwest in Albuquerque, New Mexico, by her mother. She may have been in the company of two male individuals. That's about it for her case. She pops up on the forums for America's Most Wanted. She's got several pages out there. Charlie Project basically says the same thing I just said. And... It, it links a couple of, of things in there. That so Web Sleuth has her. This is going to be an interesting time period for missing persons in New Mexico. I you know there's there's quite a few that go missing from just before this to about 2008 2009. There's all sorts of threads you can follow that that mention her as a possible like serial killer, victim, etc. That's, you know, pretty, I don't know, speculative. And the bottom line is, you know, people, they, you want to go and you want to find these people. You want to draw attention to the cases, but you don't want to speculate in that direction too far. Um, I will say that the Drifton Lounge does not have the best reputation on the planet. Generally speaking, one of the things I found online about it was 
people saying it's essentially where you go if you want to get shanked. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's more recently. But it, literally, there was a response somewhere online when I was looking for it. It said, the Drift-In Lounge on Bridge in Coors is where you might get shanked. Uh, right, but she was there on her own volition, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying anything about it. I'm just saying this reputation on here. I, You know, I when I look at cases like this, I always have a bad feeling when someone is seen leaving a bar with a couple of people like those cases, they very rarely turn out to be anything good. Um, I don't know for sure that's what happened here. That's just what's referenced. Right. And I don't understand why those cases aren't solved. Right. Correct. Yeah. Those cases should be sort of witness heavy in some ways. This, uh, the location of the Drift In Lounge, from what I could pull up, was uh, 1119 Old Coors Drive, Southwest. Not 100% certain that it's there anymore. When I go looking for more information about uh, sort of just her, I don't see anything. Um, there's, there's, there are a few articles that popped up back then in terms of like kind of covering her case, but... I don't see a lot about her personal life. Did you no, see anything else? No. And sometimes if you look, especially through like forums and stuff, occasionally you'll come across somebody who knew the person, right? Or family of the person, or sometimes it's even like distant family that didn't know the person, but they know a little bit more about the story. And I couldn't find anything like that on this uh, particular case. It's really unfortunate because... I think that there are people that frequent. Now, it's a lounge. I don't really know what that means, but it's like it's, a club, right? Yeah, so it's a little bar. Right. And so, you know, we talked earlier in a different case about how, like, there's a certain age where people that don't necessarily have families of their own, but they're too old to do, like, the whole at home with their parents, family thing, they, they actually would frequent, you know, a lounge or a club or a bar on Christmas day. Right. Yeah. We talked about it. This is, I think the, maybe the third case that we've been considering and covering for Christmas. Right. And so it's actually making me think that it's not a great idea, right. To head out to anywhere on Christmas, but you know, it, it has like sort of, because I look at the holiday season as such a happy time. This is just um, one of, you know, the most tragic things ever. And then when I can't find sort of any information so much later and, you know, nobody's saying, oh, well, I knew her and this, that, and the other happened. I always feel like these are the cases that the police absolutely probably got information from people that were on the scene and saw her leave with two men or whatever the circumstances were and that, you know, they've exhausted the leads and they don't have the evidence. Right. And, you know, is the case open? Well, yeah, it's open, but you know, they know who she left with and there's no evidence to bring anything against them. And so are we looking for anything else? No, because we already know. Right. And I don't know for certain that, that this case is like that, but that's how I interpret it. This type of setup, right? The way that it, the circumstances of her uh, disappearance played out. Right. Because I don't really see how they could have the information of the fact that she left with two guys that were involved in narcotics. That's what it said sort of in, you know, 
uh, italics beside of it, right? And not know who they are, right? Somebody knew those people. That's why they were able to say that. Yeah, she's the only open New Mexico case for the holiday season of 1998. Like, I looked at like a three-month stretch there, and she's the only one that's still open. To me, it seems like putting two and two together, this could be resolved, at least in theory. Yeah, I mean, especially if those guys had anything to do with it, it should, I think it should wrap itself up pretty clearly if there's multiple people involved, because they've probably told someone. And it could be that, like, law enforcement has some idea but no evidence that's that's exactly what i feel like has happened and uh there's cases i feel like have the least chance of being solved because they've already in their you know in their investigation they know who did it but they can't do anything about it and so you know there's not going to be any new information coming forth Uh, that's how i imagine it is anyway yeah, I don't. I don't think I disagree with that idea. I, you know, I don't. When I look at this case, I don't see anything here that you know stands out in a way that I could go, okay, well, here's what happened. It is a, it's a tragic case, and I wish that there was some closure for the family. Uh, that's why I'm highlighting it. You know, this is a. See, if she were alive today, she would be 58 or so. She'd be. Um. She would be. She'd be. 59 as of November, I believe. Okay. She has an active uh, case file that is with the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department. There's a detective that's assigned to the missing persons case here. It's got uh, 1999 is when they have the case file open. So somebody opened this a couple of weeks after she went missing. It looks like her mom opened the case up. And I, I hope that someone is able to to find her or to maybe put some closure to the matter. I guess that's the best way to look at this particular one. Uh, I don't have a lot on her. Do you? No, that pretty much very few details that were available is all I found. Yeah. So that's our missing persons case for this particular episode. Now I have like a, I have an exoneration case that's kind of an odd one. It actually, it has quite a few sources on it. And it if you go hunting for it, one of the best places to read about it is uh, Northwestern's Law School. It has a really good write-up on it. Um, and then also we have this uh, national registration of uh, exonerations that we've been using the registry there. Um, for this case, this is a, uh, a, a weird one for a, a number of reasons. This, so first of all, it involves two people. We'll say that up front. It's a California case out of San Bernardino County. And the reported date of the crime is 1965. The conviction date is 1975. The exoneration date is 1975. Uh, so for one of them, it did not result uh, in a, in a sentence. And for the other one, the sentence was aborted right before it was going to be pronounced. So these are, uh, the demographics on this, it, this is a male and a female. They're both Hispanic. One is 27. The male is 27. The female is 26. And the contributing factors are listed as uh, false or misleading forensic evidence. On March 13th, 1975, 
then 35-year-old Merla Walpole, who had previously been known as Merla Bueno, and her ex-husband, 30, then 38-year-old Antonio Rivera, were convicted of second-degree murder in the death of their daughter, Judy Rivera, in San Bernardino, California. Judy Rivera had disappeared in January of 1965 at the age of three. And when a child's bones were found in the Jerupa Hills in 1973, police came to the conclusion that they were Judy Rivera's remains. Walpole and Rivera insisted to investigators that they had been unable to care for their chronically ill three-year-old daughter, and they had left her at a filling station in San Francisco in the hope that someone else could afford to provide the needed medical care for her. Police, however, were not convinced by this story and believed that the couple had murdered their young child. Okay, I'm going to just go out on a limb and say that story itself is crazy. It is crazy, but I believe it. I don't know that I would have believed it. Like if I was one of the investigators that had like found the bones. Right. Right. But I mean, it's actually, I actually don't know if it's like the most selfish or the most selfless thing they could have done. Right. I feel like there were probably a bunch of options in between not being able to afford the medical care and, uh, you know, leaving her at a filling station, which is a gas station, essentially. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, so this case pops up in uh, the book I mentioned before, The Miscarriages of Justice and Potentially Capital Cases from the Stanford Law Review. It's a book, a journal book version when you hear about a case like this, I think of like the safe haven laws. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, where you can surrender um, a an infant to a fire station uh, within, I think, seven or ten days after birth. Yeah, I I did not know the history of those. Have, have you like looked into those? I haven't, but um, to my knowledge, those are. Fairly recent. They actually are. And that's why I was bringing them up. So at this point, like they abandoned their child, right? Even with the story they're telling, it's not like they didn't do anything wrong. Correct. It's an, it's an abandonment issue. Um, It's a crime. Safe haven laws in the U S are designed to decriminalize the leaving of unharmed infants in designated safe spaces with particular private person so that the child basically becomes a ward of the state. And it's done. So they've put this intermediary group of people, I said firefighters and there's other ones um, in place for the sake of the parents anonymity, sort of, I guess. Well, for some reason, the observation has been made that people are just going to abandon babies from time to time. And they wanted to at least give a way to do that to parents who weren't going to go through the process you might, you would normally go through as if you can think of it as a normal thing. Right. And the way that I, and I haven't researched this hardly at all, but I remember the way I associate the, um, the safe haven laws that came into play, allowing for children to be 
uh, left certain places. I remember like this rash of cases where like basically um, unwanted infants were like, you know, secretly being born and being put in the trash and they were dying from like exposure. Now, I don't know that that's actually what occurred, but that's how my brain uh, sort of remembers all that. Yeah, that has been a thing that like is just sensational enough to to kind of pop on the news and be viral for a minute and then disappear. Right, because it's a very tragic thing. And, you know, there's a lot happening when you've got even one baby being, um, you know, thrown in the trash because they can't be taken care of. Um, so I'm sure it was sensationalized to the point that it sticks out in my head, right? Um, but that's how I recall it. And I thought, I've always thought that, you know, it's certainly a better option than, you know, throwing them in the trash. Correct. And so at this point, all 50 states, uh, plus Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia, they have enacted such statutes. Texas was the first state to create a safe haven law, and that was in 1999. It was in reaction to 13 incidents of child abandonment that had happened in 1999, where three of these infants were discovered dead. Well, that's exactly, I mean, I, my, my mind has it right. I mean, I didn't remember all those details, but that's why that was happening. Yeah, I sort of backing up what you're saying. But over the next nine years, all 50 states decided that it would be a good idea if they had these safe haven laws in place. Now, like you said, safe haven laws typically let parents be anonymous through the courts. Um, There is a numbered bracelet system. I don't know if you've heard about this, but that's a frequent means of linking the child back to the parents. They basically have a set of numbers that correspond between the two that they put on them. They put it on the baby and the, the, the parents are given the other side of the bracelet basically. Oh, so they actually have to like talk to the people there. There are, yes. In some places. Yes. Now some States still treat safe haven surrenders as a child dependency issue. You could still be, charged if you don't go through the process with abandonment but that complaint typically ends up in juvenile court or family court you know every what you want to call the sort of lower court the child is considered to be the ward in those situations right Um, the reason it would be in juvenile court is when you've got a a juvenile offender leaving the baby not always sometimes it's considered to be on behalf of the child. Oh, I see. Okay. So the child is a juvenile. So the child goes there. Now the parent can appear or they can default. Um, There are situations in some jurisdictions where they treat safe haven surrenders similarly to adoption surrenders. And that means that the statute has been put in place in a way that Once you go through any of the processes to voluntarily surrender a child, you have waived your parental rights. Now, you mentioned firefighters. Police stations, hospitals, and fire stations are typical locations where a safe haven law uh, applies. But some places have a baby hatch, and I had never heard of this before I started looking into this. Have you ever heard of a baby hatch? A baby hatch? Yeah, baby hatch. 
Like no. So around the world, baby hatches have been used in certain places where it's like a almost like a incubator. A, no, it's like a booth, like a safe haven baby box. And they just go put them in and leave. Yeah. So, yeah. so apparently Indiana has like a lot of these. I read that there were 153 baby hatches installed in uh, 11 states, but primarily a hundred of them were in Indiana. And I was like, a hundred? Yes. A hundred hatches in Indiana. And what? I was actually reading this crazy website that I thought was a crazy website but uh, it's like stop SHBB now. And what it stands for is stop safe haven baby boxes now. And they have an interactive Google map on the page that shows you where all these safe haven uh, baby boxes are. Like it, it is definitely a thing that I was completely unaware of and that people use to for lack of a better word, like raise money politically. And then the, you know, it, it was wild to me that there existed such a thing as like a cushioned box called a baby hatch where you can go and open a little door and like slip a baby in it. And you no longer are responsible for that baby. So, is there like a light you turn on to let them know that there's an occupant or do we just I, trust that somebody's regularly checking these hatches? All I hundred wondered, of them. I wondered all of the things that you're saying. I know none of the answers to these questions. Same. I was, just, I was fascinated. And then, so look, I let's be honest. I'm bringing this up. I'm in a mixed household religion. Wise, okay. Mm-hmm. The baby, I, I practice nothing. Other people practice things, but the baby safe haven laws are sometimes referred to as baby Moses laws. But I couldn't help but think of like the whole baby Jesus in the manger thing when I was thinking of these safe haven hatches. So that's why I brought them up, and I figured this case would be a particularly good place to like talk about some of this random knowledge that I have developed in some of this. So, cause like when you, when you have someone in your house who was not raised in the same religion you were, cause I was raised in sort of a Christian household with church and like all of the things that go with that. My wife is Jewish, which is not just religious, it's also cultural. There are differences that you find yourself like having to explain weird traditions and things that like you think of as totally normal. Well, in this instance, I think that keeping a baby or like going to court for an adoption procedure sounds like totally normal things. What I don't think of as a totally normal thing is a hatch that looks like the Goodwill box that you put like clothing into being a place that you put a baby. So is there somebody in your household that thinks that's completely normal? No, I was just saying, like, we were talking about, like, nativity scenes 
and I realized that at the <laughs> holiday a time, really weird association. <laughs> well, there, in the in the nativity scene, there's a baby in the little um, right in the but, manger of like like if you see that at a church or you see it like put out as a whether it's live or it's a um, like some people use it as a, I don't want to say decoration, maybe that's the wrong word, but like some churches here driving around, we would see nativity scenes out, right? And lights and things like that. Well, there's a little doll in the little hatch. And what I realized was on the side of the safe haven stations, the stations, they're like this picture of a baby and like a little swaddle. It looks like the baby in the manger. Well, that's the same symbol that's on the side of the baby box. Yeah. Uh, it's a we- This is all a weird concept to me. Okay. So this has been controversial for some places and, and some people. Uh, supporters of the safe haven laws have said that the laws save lives by encouraging parents to surrender infants safely. They provide an alternative to abortion, an alternative to child abandonment, and an alternative to infanticide, which I guess those things should be obvious to people. But I, but, the, but it's so different, though. All of that. Every single thing you I, mentioned was different. I, 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 am, I am saying it because I cannot believe this topic of controversy exists on the internet. And like people think it's okay that the alternative is to give up children like this. I understand we need safe havens. I well, don't understand how we need safe haven hatches. Um, I, I have a tendency to agree with you, and I have to, I have to, for my own sanity, believe that um, while it is, you know, a viable option, uh, it can't possibly be utilized like on a consistent everyday basis. I just don't believe that um, the baby box or yeah, the safe haven idea that would well, know that the hatch, the actual like you know, just kind of leaving the baby in a box i have no idea about how does that like come to be legal how is there like a moment and i know that like legislators legislators in different states do stupid stuff all the time but i'm just picturing how this argument would happen in some states say indiana in this case like house and senate they have arguments like you know the size of the box like is that a thing like we want it to be like a little box like a size of a fire hydrant the other guy's like no we want it to be like you know like a bus stop where multiple babies can be in the hatchet <laughs> side by side all one time like how does that go when they're having that type of well argument? not to mention like who is then responsible for the baby that's what i'm concerned about it's well, like if if you go like 10 years with a baby hatch that you're supposed to be you know checking like what all the time to make sure there's not a baby in there. And I'm, then like one day you miss it. And, but that was the day that somebody left a baby there. I read that there were sensors and all kinds of different things that you have to do and you have to dial a number. I don't know what if it's true because I, and I'm derailing from this exoneration for just a second, because this really like, I don't know how to explain to you how fascinated I am by this. I'm not trying to be funny. And I like, it is attached to so many levels of true crime, but like right this second, I'm having trouble like looking at it and going, this is all crazy to me. It is. I, I, I have a tendency to agree with you. Um, however, I believe that behind every baby hatch box, there is a uh, legislation, a state legislation that believes in empowering a, um, a not ready mother 
to not put her infant in the trash can and let it die from exposure and instead put it in a baby hatch. You know what? When you say it that way, I feel like an asshole for like having been fascinated by this in a pretty comical fashion. But <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's a weird, it's a weird concept. But that is, I, I firmly believe that's why they did it. the The issue is, I don't know that it really needed all of this attention, right? Um, as far as like you know, hundreds of of baby hatches and stuff like that. I think it just needed some like aware people to like give information to struggling pregnant. Uh, well, and moms. you know, you know what? That is so interesting that you say it that way because that's the other side of this argument. That's like there are people that are against safe haven laws, and there there are different reasons that they're against them, but they basically say. Like there's not requirements in the statutes for parents to be under stress. One parent could use the law to avoid noticing like a non-surrendering parent. And they criticize the fact that in some states, safe haven laws favor mothers, which arguably that's going to be who this is most important for. Like, I'll be honest, it conjures up a terrible image in my head if I think of a dad like sneaking out in the night because his wife can't handle it and like taking the baby and like going to the fire station and dropping the baby off, that's like weird to me. Right. But also I'm just going to go with, I don't, I don't think that that's happened. Well, no, it doesn't. And so the other sort of critique of all this is that there are frequently already on the books, different types of temporary surrender laws. And that is specifically for, Parents who don't know what they're doing. So parents who are unsure about like whether they're going to keep their child or put it up for adoption or whatever, they like they're like these safe haven laws kind of make it a permanent version of what used to be like, I don't want to say mental ward, but mental health rehabilitation facilities where a mother, usually not a father, could check in and be like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm too young. I'm broke. I'm poor, whatever. And they could get services to help them prepare for parenthood. Uh, possibly. Um, I really do think that, um, see, in that case, in that type of case, I feel like that's not the same sort of mindset that's going through what this is aimed at, right? Yeah, no. Like, you're absolutely 100% correct at what this is aimed at because it starts in Texas where they have these child abandonment issues where several of them were, you know, found dead. It was like a rampant problem. And, yeah, I remember um, it happening that, and like it across was, the U.S. Right, and it was in the news and, like, it's entirely possible. Um, a lot of unidentified bodies in NEMAs are infants, I would say that um, confidently. And um, as we got on a more, like as we were headed towards the 24-hour news cycle, which you said this was Texas 1999, so that's about when we were headed that way. I imagine uh, it could have been happening already. It's just the exposure uh, increased, right? Like suddenly we knew about all these cases. Yeah. And um, so timing wise, you know, I, I feel like um, I, I feel like this is probably like an age old type issue that probably goes back a long, 
long, long way, you know, you know, as far back as like Jesus in the manger, right? I mean, um, that wasn't exactly the same thing, but I get what you're saying there. And um, this is just a, uh, a more diplomatic way of trying to handle it, right? Yeah. But these, so I don't think that these parents that we're talking about today would have had the option at that time. Uh, they would have actually been abandoning their child, not to mention the child is three years old, which is another reason why I think the safe haven laws are very specific because you don't actually really have a chance to decide if you're not good at parenting, right? Right. Well, so that came up in, uh, there was controversy with one of these laws in Nebraska. In July of 2008, the Nebraska law in force at the time, it was interpreted to define a child as anyone under the age of 18. And it resulted in non-infants. So like you've put people dropping off their 13-year-olds in the baby hatch? <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> That's what I was picturing. This sounds terrible, but that's what I was picturing. But under the so under the prior version of their law, they had 35 children dropped off at Nebraska hospitals in a four-month span, and they had people coming from other states to drop the children off. How old were the children? Different ages, up to older teenagers. The law was changed in November 2008, only allowing for infants up to 30 days old to be surrendered. So at that point, it no longer applies to the case that we're talking about at all. But I went down this rabbit hole and I'm taking you and the audience with this because it is like child abandonment in the United States has a pretty like wealthy history that you can go and read about lots of different things that have happened. And it's not just what you were talking about where the 24 hour news cycle has picked it up and made us aware of it. Also, recently, there was a spate of these cases where many years ago, there used to be in high schools and other places, um, younger girls and younger adult women abandoning their children. Those cases are now starting to be solved with investigative genetic genealogy. Right. Actually, there was... um... There've been several of them, but yeah, it's because the DNA is linking them back, right? Yeah, and uh, as far as like not putting your DNA out there because you don't want that to happen, you don't have to put your DNA out there. Somebody you're related to has put it out there, and timing is everything as far as that's concerned, right? Because they're going to yeah. know approximately when the baby was born. Back to this case for a second. We're we're in March. Of 1970. Well, we're in February and March in 1975. We're at a joint murder trial of a couple who have gotten divorced in the meantime. So it's for a crime that happened in 1965. They get arrested many years later after bones are found in 1973. They're thought to be the remains of Judy Rivera and her parents, Merlo Walpole and Antonio, uh, uh, either uh, Antonio Rivera. They're, they're having a joint murder trial and they're in front of a judge named Thomas Howder, Thomas Howderson. And they've got a prosecutor named Betty Dyke. She's the deputy district attorney at the time in San Bernardino County. She brings in bone specialists, Dr. Judy Sushi and Dr. Stuart Shermas. 
And these bone specialists testify that there is a 95% chance that the bones that were found in Europa Hills are those of Judy Rivera. 95% chance. And that's based on abnormal bone formations, which Sushi and Shermas found to be consistent with Judy Rivera's medical history. So they're going to, they're, they're like, they're testifying that they believe this infant's bones that are found in the hills are Judy Rivera's. So both Wapple and Rivera, they end up testifying before the jury and they tell the story of the abandonment of their young daughter in San Francisco 10 years ago. A private investigator has been hired by the defense named Vincent Palermo, and he testifies as well. Palermo says he traveled to San Francisco and he met with a social worker who recalled a case of abandonment similar to the circumstances described by Rivera. So Antonio Rivera's testimony matches up with what Vincent Palermo has found. That abandoned girl had been renamed Judy Gass, G-A-S-S-E, by the authorities involved in the San Francisco case. The records relating to Judy Gass's case were consistent with the events described by Merla and Antonio. Judy had since been adopted and her current name and location could not be disclosed because her adoption records had been sealed. So the defense then brought in testimony from a Dr. Joseph Bailey, who was an orthopedic surgeon. They were able to give him the available medical records of this little girl, Judy. And Dr. Bailey testified that the x-rays in the medical records for Judy matched Judy Rivera's medical records. So basically, Judy Gass and Judy Rivera were probably the same little girl. Now, this testimony gets disputed later at the trial by a rebuttal witness named Dr. Walter Stilson. He's a radiologist, and he testifies that the x-rays of the two Judies show the bones of two different people. The police officers who had initially handled the abandonment case in San Francisco, the little girl found at the gas station, testified that that little girl had spoken haltingly, saying that her mother was named Betty and her father was named John. But both officers agreed that the child resembled Merla and Antonia. On March 13, 1975, the jury found both Walpole and Rivera guilty of secondary murder. Sentencing was scheduled for April of 1975, but Walpole and Rivera were allowed to remain free on bail until that time. In late April, prior to sentencing, Judge Halderson overturned the convictions of Walpole and Rivera, ordering that there had been insufficient evidence for their convictions, and he ordered that they get a new trial. In October of 1975, a couple of months later, an investigator for the San Bernardino County District Attorney's Office named Timothy Martin, he went on a pretty deep dive investigation to find the little girl who had been abandoned, and he located her living near San Francisco. Extensive blood tests and bone records confirmed to the satisfaction of the prosecution that Judy, from the abandonment case, 
was likely the child of Rivera and Walpole, to whom she also bore a strong physical resemblance. In November of 1975, Chief Trial Deputy District Attorney Donald Feld recommended that the charges against Walpole and Rivera be dismissed. And on November 21st of 1975, the charges were formally dismissed. So this comes from Megan Barrett Casino um, on the National Registry of Exonerations at the uh, University of Michigan Law School. Had you ever heard of a case like this before? I don't think so. Uh, One thing that I found interesting was the New York Times reported, I guess it would have been like right after uh, it was sort of figured out that like they didn't kill anybody and their daughter was alive, right? They reported about the teenager. So I guess she was about 13-ish at the time. Uh, She was going to visit the parents that had been on trial for killing her. (laughs) Uh, That's how it's how the title of the articles is, which is interesting, right? Um, yeah. Because clearly uh, she's not dead. But something I thought was interesting was uh, the reason her name ended up being Judy Gas was because she was found at a gasoline station. Yeah, I saw that. And to me, I was kind of like, uh, I wonder why she, maybe that's, maybe they didn't reveal her name. Uh, that she was, because she she ended up being adopted, right? Yes. And she they, was very close by uh, where she had been abandoned as well. She was not far from there at all. Right, and so they don't elaborate any further about how this went, as far as um, you know. I, I can only imagine how that went. Well, I just thought this was a cool Christmas episode to have, don't, don't you think? Well, yeah, and it. Part of the reason I brought this article up is because being published uh, November 23rd, 1975 in the New York Times uh, in 1975, Judy was making plans to visit her uh, biological parents for Christmas after they had been, I don't even know what the word is, uh, after she was alive, so there was no need for anyone to be tried for her murder. Um, I didn't find, I tried to look, it kind of gets lost in uh, a lot of things. I, I never saw if they identified those bones. I did. I tried to look it up. I pulled up the, the, the date and the time and the location. Mm-hmm. I don't see an infant from that time period that matches with what we were looking at? Well, it would be a toddler. I, I don't see a small child. Right, okay. From that time period. But also, I have found that, like, sort of generally speaking, uh, California is real weird about how they use NamUs. I wouldn't necessarily expect to see it. Well, yeah, I I don't so looking at how you could search in there, you would have infant pre-adolescent. And here's where I here's where I sort of dropped off. When I go looking for California in uh pre-adolescent, so removing like, you know, the idea of there are 16 cases and there was one from February of 1973 but it was for a male. So 
It said that there was a baby doe in 1973 recovered from a shallow grave in the foothills of Fontana. That's as close as I got to the, this case. To these bones thought to be Judy being entered into Namus. Right. Yeah. I, so I feel like um, this type of thing where, you know, it the bones are preemptively identified incorrectly there's a, I mean, I don't know how much of a spectacle it was, but there's a situation where parents are charged with the murder of the child they believe the bones belong to. And then they find the child alive, right? I feel like it can really put the underlying case in a shadow, right? It really can. And that's the really unfortunate part because um, in this case, uh, everything had worked out, even though, you know, she had been abandoned, it did seem like they genuinely wanted what was best for her. And perhaps she ended up getting it. Um, but, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm going, well, whose bones were those? And it's really hard to kind of pin that down. Yeah. So that case got entered into Namus in April of 2011. And it had something on the profile, if that's the right one. Because it's San Bernardino County, it's the right year, it's a child between the ages of two and four. It had something on the profile that I had never seen before. They list that the child had a, a child's rosary with a gold-colored crucifix. And then everything else they found that day is listed as description withheld as possible evidentiary value. So that's probably the child. That's what I think. I think this but is But they've the, determined it to be a boy. Yes. Yeah. But we so, don't know like how long that took. I mean, I, I do not know. Uh, it has a, a agency case number from 1973. Uh, September Jones was the detective who was on it for a while. Um, but I noticed that there was no current investigator listed and the coroner had the case. Wow. That's really interesting. Cause that probably is, um, that is probably the case that we're talking about. That's what I think. Um, I did find that one, though, and it, it's a male. Um, so not only did the, the people testifying get it wrong about, like, the bone conditions and the x-ray comparisons, they also got it wrong about the ginger of the bones. Uh, right. And so, yeah, that's the case because the comparisons indicate that um, it had been ruled out as being Judy Riviera. Well, there you go. Uh, and I just pulled that up and saw that. Um, and it actually checked it against a missing person from 1949. Huh. So that's interesting. So they do have the DNA, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, they. I guess, you know, but I mean, determining, uh, I imagine her case, somebody had to have noticed the child missing and reported it, right? Uh, and I mean Judy. And then it was probably like one of the only ones in the area. And that's why that all came up, right? Yeah, it was. It, that's actually a good point. It is a little strange that we get all the way to them being charged with murder. Well, right. Because like, okay, her parents didn't even report her missing, yeah, not not yeah. They didn't report her missing, which weirdly enough, that's one of our rules. If somebody doesn't report someone missing, that's a great person to put at the top top of your suspect list. 
Well, sure, and that's exactly what happened, right? When yep. a baby turned up, uh, I don't know what the circumstances were, but you know, other people in a child's life are going to notice that they are not there, even if they are. I mean, I guess in rare cases, uh, it's possible that nobody else notices. But even if they are young, you've got aunts, uncles, grandparents, neighbors, you know, somebody could notice something. And I'm sure somebody did notice something and they reported it. And, you know, I don't know that an investigation was done, but when there was certainly, there was enough somewhere that uh, tipped somebody's, that it, it gave somebody a red flag to say, hey, we need to go talk to these parents, right? Yep. I don't have anything else on this one, do you? No, I don't. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys a, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime Excess code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime Excess. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. 
Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be X. S. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations. If you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. 
So the first one is, uh, the third one is liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but... I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So 
Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and then my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several new eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing, not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylist accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash true crime access. You can also use the code true crime access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code true crime access.